Lesson 6 for May 5 to 11, ready for teaching on May 12. The Change of the Law. Sabbath afternoon, May 5. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week, and we're studying this week about the Sabbath, its meaning, and what happened to it over time, and how it speaks to us of your love and your goodness to us. As we open your word this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us in everything we read, but in also everything we do in our own personal lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. Let's read that again. Daniel 7:25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. Central to our understanding of last day events is the question of the law of God. More specifically, it is the question of the fourth commandment, the seventh-day Sabbath. Although we understand that salvation is by faith alone and that keeping the law, including the Sabbath, can never bring salvation, we also understand that in the last days, obedience to God's law, including the seventh-day Sabbath, will be an outward sign, a mark of where our true allegiance lies. This distinction will become especially obvious amid the climactic end-time events predicted in Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 14, when an all-powerful conglomeration of religious and political forces will unite to enforce a false form of worship upon the inhabitants of the world. All this is in contrast to Revelation 14 verse 7, where God's people are called to worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water, that is, to worship only the Creator and no one else. This week we will look at the law of God, especially the Sabbath, and we will touch on issues surrounding the attempted change of that law and what it means for us, upon whom the end is soon to come. Sunday, May 6, The Promise One of the greatest promises in the Bible is found in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. These words come as a capstone or a culmination of the train of thought that came right before. Only by studying what Paul talked about just preceding this verse can we better grasp the hope and promise found in it. Question. Read Romans chapter 7 verses 15 to 25. What is the essence of what Paul is saying in these verses that makes what he says in Romans 8 1 so reassuring? Romans 7 verse 15. Remembering that it precedes Romans 8 1. 
For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And then verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Although great debate has existed in Christendom over whether or not Paul was talking specifically about himself as a believer here, one thing is clear. Paul is, indeed, talking about the reality of sin. Everyone, even Christians, can relate in some way to the struggle that Paul refers to here. Who hasn't felt the pull of the flesh and of the sin that dwells in, as it says in Romans 7.17? that dwells in them, which causes them to do what they know they should not do, or n not to do what they know they should. For Paul, the problem isn't the law, the problem is our flesh, who hasn't found himself or herself wanting to do what is right, but doing what is wrong. Even if Paul is not talking about the inevitability of sin in the life of a born-again Christian here, he certainly is making a strong case for the ever-present struggle facing anyone who seeks to obey God. So he comes to the famous words, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 His answer is found in Jesus and in the great promise of no condemnation for the believer in Jesus who, by grace, walks according to the Spirit. Yes, believers struggle. Yes, they face temptations. Yes, sin is real. But by faith in Jesus, those who believe are no longer condemned by the law. Indeed, they obey it. Thus, they learn to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So to finish today, read again the text for today. In what ways can you relate to what Paul is saying there? Why then is Romans 8.1 such a wonderful promise? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Monday, May 7, The Law and Sin 
In yesterday's study, we looked at the verses in Romans seven fifteen to 25 that talked about the reality of sin for everyone, even Christians. However, in the verses before these, Paul points to the law which shows just how prevalent sin is and how deadly. Question. Read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through to 14. What is the relationship between the law and sin? What do these verses also tell us about the impossibility of being saved by the law? Romans 7, beginning at verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that ye may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Two crucial points come from what Paul teaches here. First, he shows that the law is not the problem. The law is holy and just and good. The problem is sin, which leads to death. The other point is that the law is powerless to save us from sin and death. The law points out the problem of sin and death. If anything, the law makes the problem of sin and death even more apparent, but it offers nothing by way of solving the problem. Only a superficial reader could use these verses to argue that the law, the Ten Commandments, has been nullified. That's the opposite of Paul's point. Nothing Paul writes here makes sense if the law were nullified. His argument functions on the assumption that the law is still binding, because it's the law that points out the reality of sin and the resulting need of the gospel, as he says in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Question. 
Read Romans 7.13 again carefully. What is Paul saying not only about the law, but about why it's still necessary? Romans 7.13 Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The law does not produce death. Sin does. The law is what shows us just how deadly sin is. The law is good in that it points to sin. It just has no answer for it. Only the gospel does. Paul's point is that, as Christians, as those who are saved in Christ, we need to serve in the newness of the Spirit, Romans 7, 6. That is, we live in a faith relationship with Jesus, trusting in his merits and his righteousness for salvation, the theme of so much of what came before in Romans. And so to finish today, how has your own experience with keeping the law shown you your need of God's grace? Tuesday, May 8, from Sabbath to Sunday, question mark. As Seventh-day Adventists, we often hear fellow Christian brothers and sisters in other denominations argue that the law has been done away with, or that we are not under law but under grace. What they are really saying, however, is that only the Fourth Commandment has been done away with. Many, though, are not saying even that. They are saying instead that the seventh-day Sabbath has been replaced by the first day, Sunday, in honour of the resurrection of Jesus. And they believe they have the text to prove it, too. Below are some of the common texts in the New Testament that many Christians believe indicate the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day in the Old Testament to the first day in the New Testament. As we read them, we need to ask ourselves if they truly talk about a change of the day, or are they merely describing events that happened on the day, but without rising to the level of prescribing a change? Question. Read John 20 verses 19 to 23. What reason does this text give for the disciples being assembled in that room? What do these verses say about whether it was a worship service in honour of the resurrection of Jesus, as some claim? John 20, beginning at verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father hath sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If ye forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If ye retain the sins of any, they are retained." Question, read Acts chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. What, if anything, in these verses indicate that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, the first day of the week? And we'll also look at Acts chapter 2, verse 46 after that. Acts 20, 
Beginning at verse 6, Now we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them in Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And we'll compare that with Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through to 4. Outside of the fact that they were to store up offerings at home on the first day of the week, what does this text teach about any change of the Sabbath to Sunday? First Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Here is the essence of the textual evidence used to promote the doctrine that the first day of the week supersedes the seventh day Sabbath. Outside of describing a few times when, for various reasons, believers were gathered, not one text indicates that these gatherings were worship services held on the first day as a replacement for the seventh-day Sabbath. This argument is merely reading back into the text the centuries-long Christian tradition of Sunday-keeping. It is putting something into these verses that was never there to begin with. Wednesday, May 9, the seventh day in the New Testament. As we saw yesterday, the texts commonly used to promote the idea that Sunday replaced the Sabbath say no such thing. In fact, every reference to the seventh-day Sabbath in the New Testament reveals that it was still being kept as one of God's Ten Commandments. Question. Read Luke four fourteen to 16 and chapter 23, verses 55 to 56. What do these passages tell us about the seventh-day Sabbath, both before and after Christ's death? Luke 4, beginning at verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And Luke 23, verse 55, And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Notice how the women who had been with Christ rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Obviously, the commandment was the fourth commandment written in stone at Sinai. 
there is no indication that they had learned in their time with him anything other than the keeping of the commandments of God, which included the Sabbath commandment. In fact, Christ told his disciples in John 14.15, If you love me, keep my commandments, which he himself kept, and which included the seventh-day Sabbath. If Sunday was to be a replacement for the Sabbath, these women knew nothing about it. Question, read Acts 13, verse 14, and verses 42 to 44, and Acts 16, 12 and 13. What evidence do these verses give for the keeping of the seventh-day Sabbath? What evidence do they give for the keeping of the first day of the week? Acts 13, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And the same chapter, Acts 13, verses 42 to 44. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And Acts 16, verses 12 to 13. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for many days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. We find in these texts no evidence of a change of the Sabbath day to Sunday. Instead, they point clearly to the practice among early believers in Jesus of keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. Acts 16.13 is especially interesting because it occurs outside of the context of the synagogue. The believers were meeting by the side of a river where some customarily went to pray. And they did so on the seventh-day Sabbath, many years after the death of Jesus too. If a change to Sunday had occurred... Nothing in these texts indicates it. So to finish today, what are some non-condemnatory ways you can witness to Sunday keepers about the seventh-day Sabbath? Thursday, May 10, The Attempted Change of the Sabbath God's law, the Ten Commandments, is still binding, as we read in James 2, 10-12. For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And that law includes the seventh-day Sabbath. Why then do so many Christians keep Sunday when there is no biblical justification for it? Daniel chapter 7 talks about the rise of four great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and then Rome, the fourth and final earthly empire. 
In a latter stage of the Roman Empire, a little horn power is depicted as coming up out of this empire, as we read in Daniel 7 and verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. It is still a part of the Roman Empire, just a later phase of it. What else could this power be but the papacy, which arose directly out of Rome, and to this day is still part of it? Wrote Thomas Hobbes in the 1600s, If a man consider the original of this great ecclesiastical dominion, he will easily perceive that the papacy is no other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire, sitting crowned upon the grave thereof. End of quote. That's Thomas Hobbes from Leviathan, published in 1996, page 463. Question. Read Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. What do these verses teach that can help us to understand the origins of Sunday keeping. Daniel 7, beginning at verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. Aramaic, the original language, shows in verse 25 that the little horn power intended to change the law. What earthly power can indeed actually change God's law? Although exact details are blurred in history, we do know that under papal Rome, the seventh-day Sabbath was replaced by the tradition of Sunday-keeping, a tradition so firmly entrenched that the Protestant Reformation kept the tradition alive, even into the 21st century. Today, most Protestants still keep the first day of the week, rather than following the biblical command for the seventh day. Question. Read Revelation 13, verses 1 through to 17, and compare with Daniel 7, 1 to 8, and 21, 24, and 25. What similar imagery is being used in these texts that help us to understand last day events? Revelation 13, beginning at verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority, and I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marvelled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? 
And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he is granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and he was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, he was raised up on one side, and had three ribs in his mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. 
In the same chapter, verse 21, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And verse 24, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. And verse 25, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Using imagery directly from Daniel, which included imagery about the latter papal phase of Rome, the book of Revelation points to end-time persecution that will be unleashed on those who refuse to worship according to the dictates of the powers seen in the book of Revelation. So to finish today, how does Revelation 14, 6 and 7, especially verse 7, which reflects language taken from the fourth commandment, help to show that the Sabbath will be crucial in this final end-time crisis over worship? Revelation 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. And to finish, we'll read what it refers to in the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Friday, May 11. The same dragon, Satan, who made war against God in heaven in Revelation 12.7, is the one who makes war with God's people on earth, those who keep the commandments of God, as we read in Revelation 12.17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we're also looking at the same time at Revelation 13, verses 2 and 4. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And verse 4, So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, who was able to make war with him? So Satan started the war against God in heaven, and he seeks to continue it here on earth. And central to his attack on God is his attack on on God's law. From the Great Controversy, page 53 and 54, we read, In the fourth commandment, God is revealed as the creator of the heavens and the earth, and is thereby distinguished from all false gods. It was as a memorial of the work of creation that the seventh day was sanctified as a rest day for man. It was designed to keep the living God ever before the minds of men as the source of being and the object of reverence and worship. 
Satan strives to turn men from their allegiance to God and from rendering obedience to his law. Therefore, he directs his efforts especially against that commandment which points to God as the Creator. End of quote. We worship the Lord because he is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And the seventh-day Sabbath is the foundational sign of his creatorship, a sign that goes back to the creation week itself, as we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. No wonder that in his attack on God's authority, Satan goes after the premier fundamental sign of that authority, the seventh-day Sabbath. In the last days, God will have upon the earth people who will stay firm and steadfast in their allegiance to him, an allegiance manifested in their obedience to his commandments, all of them, including the only one that specifically points to the Lord as the Creator, who alone is worthy of our worship. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. What is the problem with those who talk about the reality of sin and yet argue that God's law has been done away with? What great inconsistency can you point out in that line of reasoning? 2. What has been your own experience with those who argue for Sunday against the Sabbath? What arguments did you use and how effective were they? How can you deal with the common argument that keeping the seventh-day Sabbath is an attempt at salvation by works? 3. As we talk to others about the Sabbath and as we prepare for end-time events, why is it important to make it clear that the challenges regarding the mark of the beast have not yet happened? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Full Circle and it's by Brittany Fletcher who is age 22 and is taking graduate classes in speech therapy in Louisville in Kentucky. A young man came up to me as I was taking out the trash on New Year's Eve at my home in the United States state of Kentucky. I have a survey here that might help the community, he said. Would you take it? The friendly stranger turned out to be a Generation of Youth for Christ, GYC, volunteer attending the Seventh-day Adventist Youth Organization's annual convention in Louisville. Little did I know that I would be going door-to-door at the next GYC convention a year later. Outside my home, I looked at the survey that the GYC volunteer had handed me. I circled my interest in Bible studies and visitation. Then I heard nothing for five months. In May, my mother told me that someone had come to the house for Bible studies. The man visited six times. I missed him every time because of my university classes. In June, the man, a Bible worker from Ramon, came when I was at home and we arranged to study the Bible at a local cafe every Friday. I knew nothing about Adventism. 
I was active in another denomination where I taught the children and went on mission trips. But I was not getting the connection with Jesus that I desired. I prayed constantly to grow closer to him. My prayers were answered with Ramon. Soon I texted Ramon that I wanted to meet twice a week. I accepted everything that I learned. As my diet and lifestyle changed, my life began to improve. I love Romans 12.2, which says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This heavenly mindset broadened my mindset. Now, when I study, I'm not hoping for a good grade, but I'm learning for God. I want the knowledge to provide healing to people as a speech therapist one day. At Ramon's church, I learned about the GYC convention in Houston, Texas in December 2016. I joined the Adventist church shortly before the convention began. Going door-to-door with GYC volunteers was exciting. Several people signed up for Bible studies. I saw the same passion that I had had a year earlier in one young man. I am praying that the story will come full circle with him, just as it did with me. I know the power of one survey. And this Sabbath I expect to be at the English-speaking church at Rostock in Germany. And if you happen to be listening uh, to these lessons via the internet in Rostock or anywhere near there, uh, I'd love to see you uh, attending church with me uh, this Sabbath at Rostock in Germany. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.